Well, good morning. My name is Hunter Long, and I serve as a student pastor here at First Baptist Church. It is a privilege of mine this morning not only to be preaching on Mother's Day, happy Mother's Day to you all, but more importantly, it is a privilege of mine to be preaching on the Lord's Day. It is routine here at First Baptist Powell to walk expositionally or verse by verse through a book of the Bible. For the past several weeks or even a couple of months now, uh, Pastor Perry has worked through the book of Acts. However, if you were with us last week, uh, Pastor Tim began our new series, which is asking the question, what is a healthy church member? Perhaps to put another way, what does a healthy church member look like? What does a healthy church member do? Last week, Pastor Tim began our series by presenting the first characteristic of a healthy church member, one who is present in the church. This morning, I have been tasked with sharing you all the second characteristic. A healthy church member prays for the church. A healthy church member prays for the church. And if you're writing down that title, this is how I've interpreted it, and I'll be presenting this uh, topic to you all this morning, is a healthy church member prays, insert an ellipsis there, a dot, 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 for the church. Of course, it is important, it's essential that a Christian, a healthy church member, prays for the church. But a healthy church member should be one who has prayer as a part of their daily life. Not just praying for the church, but is always praying for a number of different things. And we'll talk more about that as we discuss this topic this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to the book of Acts. But we're not going to be preaching through the book of Acts like Pastor Perry, our senior pastors, will be doing. Uh, but rather, we're going to be using Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, just as a kickstarter for us to begin considering the idea of praying as a church and praying for the church and just prayer in general as believers in Christ. So that is Acts chapter 1, looking at verses 12 through 14. Once again, we're not going to be walking through this passage expositionally. I'm going to be going through a number of different passages as we consider the topic of prayer this morning. This will just serve as a baseline for us. Once you've arrived at our text this morning, please stand if you are able for the reading of God's authoritative word. Luke writes, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in verse 12, Acts chapter 1. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. You may be seated. A woman tells the story of her inviting several people over for dinner one evening. At the table, prior to the meal, the woman turned to her six-year-old daughter and said, Honey, would you mind, would you like to share and say the blessing? The girl shyly replied, I wouldn't know what to say. Encouragingly, the mother responded, Just say what you hear your mommy say. Ooh, you already know where I'm going with this. 
The daughter nodded, bowed her head, and said, Lord, why on earth did I invite all these people over here? <laughs> I can remember early in my Christian life being told that as a new believer, there are two things I need to do, and you probably know them. You need to pray and read your Bible. You need to pray and read your Bible. Often, this is our default response when somebody asks us, how can I grow as a Christian? And we just say, you need to pray and read your Bible. Okay, have fun. And we just send them on their way. There's no instruction as to what does it look like as a new believer to pray, to read your Bible. These are certainly excellent answers, praying and reading your Bible to grow in the Christian faith. In fact, these are the answers to grow in your Christian faith, coupled with church attendance, involvement, all of those things as well. I would submit to you, however, that it is difficult for a new believer uh, to read the Bible on their own for the first time because it's a book unlike any other. Uh, the Bible can be a fairly a daunting task to some people, if they, especially if they've never read a book before, right? Uh, the Bible is very much an Eastern book in its style and literature, and we're used to Western works. And so the Bible is very different, and it's not just one book, right? It's a compilation of 66 books compiled into the scripture we have today. And so it can be a daunting task. I would offer, too, in relation to our study this morning concerning prayer, that a majority of new believers, and even individuals who have been Christians for many years, just as that little girl, just don't know what to say or how to say it. I'm being told that I need to pray, but what are the things that I, as a believer in Christ, need to pray for? Not only that, but how do I even pray in the first place? This morning, it is my goal to provide a reason for the need of prayer, share a couple of models of prayer with you all, and give direction as to what we should be praying for as believers in Christ. And so I hope to accomplish this if you're taking notes in three stages. I hope to accomplish this in three stages. Number one, asking and answering the question, what is prayer? What is it? And with each one of these points, I should say this at the forefront, with each one of these points, there are going to be a few sub-points going with each of them. So you know, for those of you taking notes, space them out as we're thinking ahead here. So, number one, what is prayer? Number two, how and when shall we pray? How and when shall we pray? And number three, for what and for whom shall we pray? So, what is prayer? How and when and for whom and for what and whom shall we pray? Let's begin with that first stage or that first question. What is prayer? And for our purposes, maybe it's better to answer this question first as a sub-point. What prayer is not? Before we answer what prayer is, maybe consider what prayer is not. Because there are many wrong views in the world and culture about prayer, even among Christians. And these should be placed before us, for us to consider. Prayer is not bargaining with God. Prayer is not bargaining with God. It is not us saying to God, if I do this, then you'll do this. Or God, if you do this for me, then I'll do that for you. Prayer is not making demands of God. It is not us coming to God and having him bend his will to our wishes. It is not us as the creature telling the creator how he's supposed to do things. We are not making demands of God. Prayer is not only asking God for things. Certainly supplication is a part of prayer. We are to ask God for things, but it is not 
only asking God for things. We don't see God as just a celestial genie whom we come to with our wishes and hope he grants them. We don't only ask God for things. This is an important one. Prayer is not a therapeutic meditation type experience. Now I want to frame this because of course there is biblical models of meditation. In fact, this is a spiritual discipline is meditation. However, we need to contrast that with a very Eastern understanding of meditation, which is an emptying of the mind. Scripture does not call us to empty the mind, but to do what? To fill the mind with the things of Christ, to seek things that are above, not to empty to find pleasure here on this earth. No, seek things that are higher than yourself. Seek God. That is what we're supposed to look for in meditation. Prayer is not bothering God and taking up his time. I see this a lot with, especially students, who have a difficult relationship with their parents. Specifically, a difficult relationship with a father figure, an earthly father, whom doesn't give this child, the student, the time of day, who is too busy with his own preoccupations. And so they don't feel comfortable asking their earthly father for things. So how will a heavenly father have time for them? After all, he's got a universe to run, right? Prayer is not bothering God or taking up his time. Prayer is not a way to control the Lord. Mm. This is important. And this goes back really to making demands and bargaining with God. It's not us, uh, you know, kind of combating with God for him to bend himself to us, that he is to worship us in turn as the creature. No, that's not what scripture is calling us to, is a way to control the Lord through prayer. Certainly not. And prayer is not a way to show off one's spirituality before others. It's not a thing to be boastful in. So if prayer is not these things, then what is it? What is Christian prayer? The most basic definition that I can offer you this morning is that prayer is talking to God. And perhaps you've heard that before. Prayer is simply talking to God. Prayer is not meditation in the sense that we are entering the mind, nor is it a passive experience in which dialogue is absent. So you're not emptying yourself, but you're filling yourself with Christ. It's not a passive you know, dialogue in which no conversation is happening. It is a direct address to God. It is talking to God. It is the communication of the human soul with the Lord who created the soul. That's what prayer is. Communication of the human soul to the Lord who has created the soul. Prayer is the primary way the believer in Jesus Christ communicates their emotions, their desires with God, and fellowships with God. That's what prayer is. Prayer, as we see in Scripture and just in practice, prayer can be audible, it can be silent, it can be private, it can be public, it can be formal, or it can be informal. But although there are many different methods and environments by which prayer can be done, there are certain conditions for prayer. What I mean by that is, There are only certain individuals whom God hears in prayer. The second sub-point I want us to consider is this. So we looked at what prayer is not. Define what prayer is. Second sub-point, whose prayers does God answer? 
Whose prayers does God answer? Oftentimes in media, television, we see characters who are facing a difficult circumstance. And in the midst of that difficulty, their last result is to do what? Cry out to God. God, this, you know, genie, this guy up in the heavens, will you come and help me in my time of need? Lord, save me, they may say. Coincidentally, the character is saved because the story must go on, right? It has nothing to do with the relationship with God. The story must go on. And they go on to living their life apart from Christ just as they did before. There is no change. There is no transformation. Why? Because they were not praying in faith. They were not praying as children of God. The culture at large... I've said this a number of times already. The culture at large tends to treat God as a celestial genie who, when summoned by prayer, must grant any request they make. God, you must grant any request I make because I am made in your image, someone may say. The culture finds, I believe, a measure of encouragement in the fable Aladdin and his lamp, aspiring to that level of control over God's power in their own prayer life. But the biblical fact is that prayer has conditions. Many will say of Matthew 21, 22, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive. There it is. God is my genie. Whatever I ask, I will receive. I say it, and it will be so. But these individuals, of course, neglect the remaining piece of that verse, which is what? If you have faith. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Faith. Context is so important, dear friends. Upon further reading in the verses surrounding this promise that whatever we ask, we'll receive, we recognize that Jesus is answering not the multitude with this promise. He's not answering the multitude. He's answering a very specific and particular people, his disciples, his followers, not the multitude. He isn't answering the pagan idol Baal worshipers. Hey, whatever you all ask, you're going to receive if you ask in faith. No, he is speaking to his disciples. Those who have commissioned and devoted their life to service of, for Christ and his kingdom. Prayer is for God's children. Prayer is for God's children. Perhaps the greatest example of this is when Jesus instructs his disciples to pray in Matthew 6, 9. Jesus says this, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. There are two things I think to notice with the language here in the Lord's Prayer that Jesus uses. First, prayer is directed to our who? Father. Thus denoting an intimate and personal relationship, not some one-off, will you come help me in my time of need? Thank you very much. I'll be on my way doing what I've always loved. No. This is a prayer to your Father. To pray to the Father is to be known as a son or daughter. To pray to the Father is to be known as a son or daughter. Second, I want you to notice the corporate nature of the prayer. It is not my Father. It is our Father. Prayer to God as Father is a social prayer. One that is done corporately amongst God's people. One scholar said this. The whole prayer, speaking of the Lord's Prayer. The whole prayer is social. The singular pronoun is absent. Man enters the presence of the Father and then prays as one of the great 
family. Prayer is for God's children. It is for God's children, those who have an intimate and devoted relationship to Christ. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia defines prayer this way. Christian prayer, Christian prayer, in its full New Testament meaning, is prayer addressed to God as Father, in the name of Christ as mediator, and ne- uh, sorry, in the name of Christ as mediator, and through the enabling grace of the indwelling Spirit. I want to read that again because I stumbled over it. Christian prayer in its full New Testament meaning is prayer addressed to God as Father, in the name of Christ as mediator, and through the enabling grace of the indwelling Spirit. To pray without knowing God as Father, Christ as mediator, and never experiencing the grace of the indwelling Spirit is to pray to a wall. To pray with no results. And we cannot say to ourselves, well, if that is the case, then I will work really hard so that God will hear me. I'll work so hard that he'll have to hear my cries. They'll have to honor me. We cannot say that I will live a life worthy of being heard by God. The fact of the matter is that none of us in our own standing are worthy or are able. Psalm 10, 3 and 4 says, For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Albeit we may call out to God as Father, desire that he would save us, but not express faith in him is to pray to a wall. Apart from Christ, dear friends, by this verse, by scripture, apart from Christ, I have no desire to pray. I have no desire to be in a right relationship with God. It is only because of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, what he has done on the cross to even make it possible for us to approach God's throne in prayer with boldness and confidence. There's nothing I can do. It's all because of Christ that I can pray with boldness and confidence. It is only through faith and belief in the name that is above all names that I can have the righteousness given to me to pray to God as Father, as Lord. John 1, 12 and 13 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, who expressed faith, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Access to God as Father comes not through your own efforts. It comes not through what family you've been born into because you've been born into a Christian family. It comes only from above. It comes from God. And because of Jesus, dear friends, we can call out to God and say, Abba, Father. Listen to these challenging words from David in Psalm 34, which Pastor Tim just read for for us. I'm going to just dance around here in this passage for a second. David says this, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. Well, how can I be righteous? Not by my own. I must place my faith in the righteous one, right? Jesus. So he hears our cries. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. 
Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate righteous, who hate the righteous, will be condemned. This morning, dear friends, if you have been trusting in your own efforts to have a right relationship with God, your church attendance, who your friends are, who your family is, your ability maybe even to memorize scripture, perhaps. Trust no longer in things, but trust in Jesus Christ, whose righteousness becomes yours by faith and gives you the right to become children of God and to pray to God as Father. This morning, you made a profession of faith. We'd like to talk more about this Jesus who has died the death that you deserve and given you righteousness that you could not earn on your own so that you can be in a right relationship with God. I encourage you to speak to a pastor. Go out these doors, main doors here, take a left. There's a room called Crossroads just before you leave. There's a pastor there who would love to discuss God's saving work through his son, Jesus Christ, with you more. So what is prayer? Prayer is communicating with God as his children who have experienced God's transforming work through his son, Jesus Christ, and are being enabled by the Spirit of God to pray. That's what prayer is. The second main point I would like for us to consider is how and when shall we pray? I felt that it was necessary that we cover that information first because everything going forward would mean nothing if you don't believe in Christ. Models of prayer would mean nothing to those who do not know God as Father. But for those of us who desire to pray because of God's transforming work in our hearts, here's how we can learn to pray together. So how and when shall we pray? And there's going to be two subpoints here. Number one is the how, and number two is the when. So subpoint number one, how. How is prayer to be done? Prayer can, of course, take many different forms in terms of length and content. A prayer, although it may be short, isn't any less of a prayer that is long. And a prayer that is long isn't any more of a prayer than a prayer that is short. Perhaps the best resource I can share with you, secular resource that I can share with you, is a book on prayer that I had the privilege of walking uh, my students through last summer at our beach camp. And the title of the book is Praying the Bible. I'm sure many of you may already have a copy of this. I know we're going to get copies in the future in our bookstore out there. Pastor Tim, do we already have those out there by chance? Okay, we're going to get them out there because this is a phenomenal, phenomenal book. But it's a book written by Donald Whitney, who is a professor of spiritual disciplines at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Listen to the premise of his book. And the book title, again, is Praying the Bible. Whitney writes, I maintain that people truly born again Genuinely Christian people often do not pray because they do not feel like it. And the reason they don't feel like praying is when they do pray, they tend to say the same old things about the same old things. The solution he offers then is to pray scripture. Pray scripture. Give God's words back to him and as requests come to mind, lift them up to God. When he goes on to say, what you are doing when you are praying the Bible is taking words that originated in the heart and mind of God and circulating them through your heart and mind back to God. By this means, hear what he says, God's words become the wings to your prayers. God's words become the wings to your prayers. Turn with me to Psalm 23. I think it will be 
silly if I told you about how to do this and I don't even present how you do it, okay? So we're going to turn to Psalm 23. We're going to practice this together. We're not going to read the entire psalm, but I want to give you an example of what this may look like in your own prayer life. Psalm 23, a familiar psalm, I'm sure, to many of us. But if I were to engage in a time of prayer, first, it would be helpful to actually read the text first. Read the text. What is God saying in this passage? Because that can certainly inform you on maybe some other things to pray about. But if I'm looking at Psalm 23, and I've read the passage, I've thought deeply about the passage, I'm not emptying my mind, but I'm filling my mind with God's word, what he says here in Psalm 23, then I go to the Lord in prayer. And I say something like this, right? And I'm not giving you all the script. This is just an idea of something you can do. If I were to read the psalm, I would say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And in my prayer, I would turn and thank the Lord that he is my shepherd. Lord, I'm thankful that you are my shepherd. And because you are my shepherd, I have all that, I've, all that I need. God, you provided for my ultimate need in your son, Jesus Christ. Because through him, I have no fear in life or death, just as we sang about. And we may even think of the idea of a shepherd. Lord, I'm thankful that because you are my shepherd, you help guide and direct me in life. Maybe even as you're thinking about the Lord being your shepherd, there comes up a situation in your mind in which you need a shepherd's guidance. Lord, I need your shepherd leadership in this situation. Lord, would you give me wisdom? Would you give me knowledge in how to best handle the situation? And after I prayed through that verse, I would just move on to the next. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. For me personally, this would lead me to pray a prayer of thankfulness that God has brought me from who I was in high school and he's brought me to who I am today. That he has made me lay down in green pastures. He has given me a place to rest. He has given me a church family. He has given me a wife to love. He has given me a daughter to love. Lord, I'm thankful that you have laid me down to rest. Verse 3, I would then pray, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Well, brothers and sisters, we would praise God that he has given us salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. That he restores our soul on a continual basis. And that through his word and memorizing his word, he leads us in paths of righteousness so that we can walk in a manner that is worthy and honoring of him. So that's just three verses. But that's an example of something that you can do in praying the Bible. If you want, you know, just a further conversation about that, I would love to talk to you. But I, I think it would just be silly of me to talk about how, you know, we, none of us know how to pray, and I don't even provide a model of prayer for you. So that's one example. It's just one example. Scripture itself, aside from Whitney's book, certainly offers excellent models of prayer. Specifically, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Jesus instructs his disciples in how to pray, and in his instruction, the Lord's Prayer is broken up into a three-part model as to what prayer should look like. So turn with me to Matthew 6. 9 through 13. This is where we find the Lord's Prayer. And I want us to see this three-part model that Jesus uses in prayer to God. Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. If you're looking there in verse 9, the first part of the prayer is praise and worship for God. That's stage one. When I pray, maybe I should start with praise and worship. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. There is no other name above your name. Your name is reserved for the holy of holies. The second part moves into requesting 
God's will to be done, not our own. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then part three comes requests. So before I even mention requests to God, I am praising him for his will to be done. Or I'm praising him for who he is. I'm requesting that his will be done, not my own will. That in his sovereignty, he would guide and direct my steps. And then three, part three, I start lifting my requests to him. These are prayers of supplication. Prayers that the Lord would give us strength to resist temptation. Certainly the Lord's Prayer is a prayer that we should always pray, but it provides a model of prayer for us. Another model, last model I want to talk about under the how is the ACTS formula. A-C-T-S. Maybe some of you have heard this before. ACTS is an, uh, an acronym standing for adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. So ACTS. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. And so that really serves as a model for prayer. I'm thinking about adoration, confessing, thanking God, and then making requests to God. I do want to offer a caution as I'm presenting these models of prayer. Prayer is not a formula. And I've just given you a lot of formulas, and now I'm saying prayer is not a formula. <laughs> what I don't want us to do is I don't want us to get bogged down into thinking, did I offer enough supplication? Did I adore too much? <laughs> no, certainly not. These are just helpful guides to get you started if you don't already have a prayer life. This is just a way to get you going. And then once you become comfortable in prayer, you can start being more extemporaneous with it. All these models are just helpful guides. Know this, brothers and sisters. Formulas aside, God desires that as those who have faith in Christ, that we should talk from our hearts and express ourselves to him. That's what it's about. But this is just a helpful, helpful starting point, I think. Step point number two, when. So we've learned some models of how to pray, but when should we pray? After recognizing what prayer is and how we should pray, when should we as believers in Christ pray? Paul offers for us an answer in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. He says, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So does Paul mean then that I am to be head bowed, eyes closed, in a posture like that all day long? I don't think so. I believe that what Paul is referring to is, I believe that Paul is not referring to nonstop talking, but rather an attitude of God consciousness and God surrender that we carry with us all the time. Meaning that every waking moment is to be lived in an awareness that God is with us and that he is actively involved and engaged in our thoughts and actions. When our thoughts turn to worry, fear, discouragement, anger, we are to consciously and quickly turn every thought into prayer and every prayer into thanksgiving. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul commands us to stop being anxious and instead, in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. He taught the believers at Colossae to devote themselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. He exhorted the Ephesian believers to see prayer as a weapon to be used in fighting spiritual battles. As we go through our day, prayer should be our first response to every fearful situation, every anxious thought, and every undesired task that God commands. 
A lack of prayer will cause us to depend on ourselves rather than God's grace. A lack of prayer will cause us to, defi- uh, to depend on ourselves instead of depending on God's grace. Unceasing prayer is, in essence, continual dependence upon and communion with the Father. For Christians, prayer should be like breathing. You do not have to think to breathe because the atmosphere is exerting pressure on your lungs and essentially forces you to breathe. That's why it's more difficult when you try to hold your breath because of all the pressure that's being placed upon you. Similarly, when we are born into the family of God, we enter a spiritual atmosphere where God's presence and grace exerts pressure or influence on our lives. Prayer is the normal response to that pressure. As believers, we have all entered into the divine atmosphere to breathe the air of prayer. Unfortunately, many believers hold their spiritual breath for long periods. Thinking that just brief moments with God are sufficient to allow them to survive. But such restricting of their spiritual intake may be caused by sinful desires. The fact is that every believer must be continually in the presence of God, constantly breathing in his truth to be fully functional. So when should you pray? As often as you breathe, for you are children of God. The third main point that I like to draw our attention to is for what and for whom shall we pray? For what and for whom shall we pray? Of course, there are many things that we can certainly pray for as Christians. We pray for our missionaries. We pray for, uh, we pray for our jobs. We pray for our family. We pray for friends. We, we pray for safety during sporting events, for travel. There's a number of things that I could discuss here, but I really just want to isolate a few for us here this morning. One that's particular in relation to our title, and then two maybe that kind of get thrown under the radar. First, I would like for us to consider that as believers in Christ, who through faith and baptism has placed us in the body of Christ, the church, we are to pray for the church and its leaders. Because we are part of the body of Christ through faith and baptism, we are to pray for the church and its leaders. Pray, first and foremost, that the church would preach the word of God without apology. Pray that the church would preach the word and its leaders would preach the word without apology. Paul exhorts his protege Timothy as a leader in his church to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and would turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The time was certainly there for Paul and Timothy, and that time is certainly here today, isn't it, church? As the church and its leaders divert from God's word, not only does it affect the health of the church, but it affects the people. Pray that our leaders also would serve humbly as godly examples to all. Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 2 and 3, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, 
but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Sadly, there are many who lead under compulsion. They do so for personal gain, all while maintaining a domineering attitude. Shepherds do not do their jobs as lords because the sheep do not belong to them. Shepherds do not do their jobs as lords because the sheep do not belong to them. The sheep, rather, have been entrusted to them through the chief shepherd. May it be that we foster shepherd leaders who serve under the chief shepherd who is Christ. Second, we pray for unbelievers. Pray for the church. Pray for its leaders. And second, we are to pray for unbelievers. And this is one I think may slip under our radar. In John 17, 3, Jesus prays his high priestly prayer and says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Jesus prays that the people would come to know God, the Father, through means of knowing Christ, the Son. In praying for believers, we pray to the Lord that in his kindness, that he would draw people to himself and for God to raise up workmen who would labor into the harvest. We can pray for boldness like the apostles did and seizing those opportunities when they become available to us. Third and finally, we should pray for our enemies. Ooh, pray for our enemies. Wow. We're going right for it. We are. Jesus teaches in Matthew 5, 43 through 45. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor And hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Our first response when we hear that we are to pray for our enemies may be, sure, I'll pray for them. That disaster falls upon them, right? (laughs) We may be tempted to pray the imprecatory psalms and hope to sit back and watch God exact vengeance on our evildoers much like Jonah did outside of Nineveh. But that is not what is meant by praying for our enemies. Don't try to find a loophole with Jesus' words here. Because he had something better in mind that would not only benefit you, but would benefit your enemies. When someone sets out to cause harm, our natural reaction is to protect ourselves and fight back. Is it not? They gossiped about us, so I'll gossip about them. They lied about me, so I'll lie about them. They smeared my reputation, so I will smear theirs too. However, Jesus calls us to a higher standard, does he not? He demonstrated that standard by never retaliating when someone wronged him. And they wronged him a lot. People rejected his message. The religious leaders mocked him and tried to trap him. His own family was ashamed of him and tried to get him to stop preaching. His friends deserted him in his worst moment. And the city that cried Hosanna when he arrived in town shouted, crucify him a few days later. So Jesus had enemies. And when he said to pray for our enemies, I believe he knew what he was talking about. He's not calling us to do something that he's not doing himself. Jesus gave us the perfect example of praying for our enemies when he was being nailed to a cross. In the middle of his own agony, he cried out, Father, forgive them, 
for they do not know what they're doing. He talked to his father about the people who were harming him. He didn't ask for their destruction. He did not pray for revenge. What did he pray for? He prayed that they would be forgiven. Jesus had compassion on the deceived people who believed they were doing the right thing by killing the Son of God. They had no idea what was actually taking place. They had no idea how wrong they were. And when Jesus said they do not know what they're doing, I think he hinted at an important factor to keep in mind when we pray for our enemies. The enemies that we pray for hurt us from their own world of hurt. Their thinking may be influenced by the devil. Their attitudes may be shaped by past wounds. Their actions may have been manipulated by peer influences. Now, none of these excuses their behavior or minimizes the damage they cause, but it helps to explain the why of the matter. So we pray that God opens their hearts, that they would be enlightened to the truth. We pray for their repentance. We pray that God would soften their hearts. We pray that in the midst of persecution, of hardship, that the Lord would use us as a vessel, as ambassadors for Christ, to preach the good news of the gospel and that they would hear it and receive it. I can guarantee that hearing this morning that you should pray for your enemies will not automatically stir up in your heart to go out this door and pray for your enemies. I don't think it's going to be that easy. And the reason I know that is because it's not that easy for me. It's not. It's not a natural response to us. Like I said, our natural response is usually to give back what we've received. However, I do think it's helpful, brothers and sisters, as we are considering praying for our enemies, to remind ourselves that we were once enemies of God ourselves. And we are now his children. Paul writes to the Colossians in Colossians 1.21, And you, speaking to Christians, you once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, just like those evil people, those enemies in your life. But he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Because of what Christ has done, we can now intercede for those who are still far off. In praying for our enemies, we become more like Christ and keep ourselves in harmony with God's will. This morning, we have learned, I pray, what prayer is, who it is for. Prayer is God's gift to his children, those who have repented and trusted in his son, Jesus Christ, to communicate with God with boldness and confidence. We have learned that prayer is to be done without ceasing, that as believers in Christ, we are we are indwelled with Christ's spirit. We are to be speaking to God continuously. And finally, we learn that we are to pray for Christ's church, unbelievers, and our enemies. I would like to leave you this morning with a quote from Charles Spurgeon on prayer. He writes this, Prayer is the natural outgushing of a soul in communion with Jesus. Just as the leaf and the fruit will come out of the vine branch without any conscious effort on the part of the branch, but simply because of its living union with the stem, 
so prayer buds and blossoms and fruits out of souls abiding in Jesus. May we as believers in the resurrected Son of God devote ourselves to prayer for this is the right response of a healthy church member who is united to Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful for this opportunity we have this morning to worship you. Worship you through song, worship you through the study of your word. Lord, I pray, first, that if anyone does not know you in this room, Father, by your spirit, would you draw them near to you? Father, our own efforts are not enough. Who our family is, how often we attend church, is not enough. It is only through faith in your son, Jesus Christ, that we have salvation. So, Father, would they turn to you this day for salvation. And, Lord, for those who do know you, Lord, I pray that out of an abiding relationship with you, the vine, that prayer would bud out of our lives, that you would give us a desire to know you more, not only through the study of your word, but through prayer, devoting ourselves to communicating with you, sharing our emotions with the one who has created the soul. May it be, Father. Lord, I thank you for this day. Thank you for the special day that it is for mothers. But Lord, thank you that it is a day in which we reflect on the good news of the gospel, Jesus Christ. Pray all this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.